Well, good evening. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're looking at verses 1 through 10. Uh, you'll find that on page 966 of your Pew Bible. Before we get started, just a little headway leading in. This is right in the middle of Paul's argument in 2 Corinthians, and this whole section is built around his suffering as an apostle. And if you were to go back in chapter 1, you would see that something has happened to Paul in his ministry in the Corinthian area that has made him, he says, despair of life itself. Something has happened so that the apostle of hope, Paul himself, has despaired of life itself. And what follows in 2 through 7 is the Apostle Paul's most realistic and honest grappling with his oncoming death. While he wouldn't die for some years after he wrote this, suddenly his death, he was perhaps faced with his death in a new way, the possibility of his death. And so we have chapter 4, which constantly expresses this idea that Christians are, really we all of us, are on a long road to death. Right? We are all on a long road road to death. He talks about us being in jars of clay. He even says that we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. Death is at work in us, but life in you. And then lastly, he says this, our inner self is being renewed day by day, but our outer self is wasting away. So you see Paul wrestling with this fact that He's really wrestling with his own mortality, confronting his own mortality in a way we've never seen before. So with that in mind, let's give our attention to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be, that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Well, let's go to our God in prayer. Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these words from the Apostle Paul showing us where our hope can be found. Father, I pray that you would send your spirit. Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear your word preached and proclaimed. Lord, would you be with me and um, guide my lips, guide my tongue as I seek to faithfully uh, show forth Christ and his gospel from this word. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in Yosemite, California, El Capitan is a 3,000... Just kidding. <laughs> Wanted to try and milk that analogy for all it's worth. Oh. Um. <laughs> now, tonight we are talking about, oh, that might have been a good lead-in for the intermediate state, one of the two. But as we continue on through our series in eschatology, we are starting to look at tonight the intermediate state and what happens when you die. 
Uh, and it really is, you might be thinking, as I was, as I was writing this sermon, it seems sort of an odd thing to write on. It's almost like writing about a waiting room, it seems like, or preaching about a waiting room. Uh, many of you may have seen the 80s movie Beetlejuice, right, where he finds himself in the in-between, and it's just a giant waiting room, and he's got like 14 trillion or something like that in the, the queue waiting for something. Um, but really, the intermediate state is something that, as we'll see, the Bible doesn't speak totally clearly about, but what it does give us are pictures, hints, suggestions of a future hope. And what we say about the intermediate state, what we say happens to us when we die, it will inevitably affect how we die. It will inevitably affect how we die. So uh, two weeks ago, Scott uh, gave a wonderful sermon on the idea of death. Right? He talked about how death is our final enemy, how Christ is the victor over death, and lastly, how we as Christians, because of Christ as our victor, we can live free from the sting of death. Well, tonight as we're going to go forward, we're going to build on some of the things he said, and really it all kind of coalesces, right? Our idea of death and our idea of the intermediate state, the space between now and the resurrection, kind of come together. So when we think about what happens when we die, right, there are a lot of pictures out there that we see, right? You think of, like I said, there's Beetlejuice or there's the other 80s classic, right, Poltergeist is sort of like bright glowing sphere that people walk into. In mythology, you have Elysium from the Greeks. And with the Vikings, you had Valhalla. In our own sort of Western American Christianity, we have the clouds with angel babies and harps. Right? All sorts of ideas confront us of what the afterlife might be like. And then, of course, there is kind of the modern notion that there is no afterlife, right? Sort of summed up in Dylan Thomas's favorite or fa famous poem where he says, rage, rage against the dying of the light, right? And death is nothing more than just a passing of the light, right? So when it's turned off, it's no more. Nothing happens after it. However, as I said, the Bible has something to say about, to us about this intermediate state, but as one theologian puts it, it whispers about the intermediate state. It whispers about what happens between now and the resurrection. And as I said, though, what we get from the New Testament, what the New Testament gives us, inevitably affects how we die. So as we ponder where we will reside on the other side of our death, I want us to think about three things tonight, building from what Paul has in 2 Corinthians 5. First is the natural fear of destruction. The natural fear of destruction. Second, the unique Christian hope of being clothed. The unique Christian hope of being clothed. And lastly, the final rest we find with Christ. So the fear, the hope, and lastly, the rest. And just as we get started, if you came tonight to get a, you know, a whole picture of what it will look like when we pass from this life and go to be with Christ, and you've not, you're not going to get your money's worth tonight. I'm not here to paint us a picture of what that will look like. Rather, my desire is for us to ponder the beauty of what it will be like when we finally depart from this life and go to be with Christ, with the hope that it will affect not only how we die, but how we live. 
and in fact, even how we witness to others. So as we go forth, as I mentioned, Paul in this section is really starting to grapple with his own death, his own impending death, really unlike we've ever seen. And he plays on this idea in verse 1 where he says, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God. If our tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God. He's really building from a natural assumption to a supernatural assumption. Right? Everyone knows that everyone dies. That's not a secret. In fact, we would say that that knowledge that we're going to die is something that all of us try and push down. Right? We always try and escape the fact that one day we're not going to be the guests at a funeral. Right? We're going to be the, the, the person of honor at the funeral. People will, become, come pay the, people will be coming to pay their respects to us, not the other way around. And I preached a version of the sermon at my grandmother's funeral a couple weeks ago, and there it's so easy, right? You come into a funeral knowing that this awaits you all the same. But in our world with the ups and downs, it's easy for us to lose sight of that fact, right? Especially if you're younger, between, you know, from 15 to 25, the idea of death never even enters your mind. As you quickly learn, though, that suddenly you turn 25 and your eyesight gets worse, hurts to get out of bed, turn 30, that gets worse, and then as many of you know, as you just get older, the reality of death comes closer and closer to where you are. Our destruction is just a fact. Paul is underscoring that everyone's house, this tent, this earthly body is going to be destroyed. And yet he notes that there's a groaning that takes place. Right? He says there in verse 4, For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. And taken with what he says about creation groaning for the, the redemption that is brought by Christ, we see that this death, this destruction, is something that not only all creation pushes against, but something that all creation hopes to be transformed. We, whether Christian or not, know it's not supposed to end this way. We know just by the sheer fact of life that it's not supposed to end. That's why, as Scott said two weeks ago, death, even for Christians, is such a tragic reality. Because we all know it's not supposed to end. It's not supposed to end like that. Life should continue. There's a groaning, a deep gut-level groaning inside all of us, knowing that death is an unnatural, destructive force. Many of you may know Susan Sontag, who was a philosopher in the mid-century. She got cancer twice. First time uh, the doctors thought she had beat it, but it came back a second time, rapidly progressed, quickly sending her into the hospice care. And this Susan Sontag, a humanist philosopher, always expecting to live another day, found herself face-to-face -face with death. And here's what her son, David Reese, said, that she concentrated her limited energy in undertaking a revolt against death, and she died unreconciled to her own extinction. Right? This philosopher, this woman who for her, for her entire career had thought about 
the good life, had thought about philosophy, when it came time for the rubber to hit the road, had no answers for the other side. For her, it was just this sheer extinction. And all of us know that fear, that fear of collapse when this earthly tent gives way. And Paul is building from that fear, building from the fact that everyone can't stand the thought of no longer being on this earth. And yet, in a roundabout way, Paul tells us about this destruction to give us a hope. Right? He says, we've got this yearning for life to continue. And so if our earthly home is being destroyed, then we as Christians can know that we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And so this comes to our second point. We have a fear of destruction. And then he turns to the hope of being clothed. The hope of being clothed. Here we see Paul probably wrestling with some sort of Gnostic view that the Corinthians were partaking in that said, hey, when you die, your body's going to give way. You're no longer going to be physical. You're just going to be pure spirit, you know, floating fat and happy as a baby in the sky, and it's going to be great. Right? Maybe some sort of Nirvana-type heaven that these Corinthians were wrestling with. And Paul says, no, that is not what we Christians believe. Right? We Christians believe that one day, we will be clothed in a house made by God himself in the heavens. We will be re, not reincarnate, we'll be re-embodied in a new glorified body. And I say this because it's important to realize that whenever the Bible, whenever we talk about the intermediate state, of what comes next, that is never the final hope. Right? That is never the thing that we're to look forward to. But the intermediate state is just that, an intermediate state. It's a place that we go to await to have our bodies finally made anew, to have a glorified, resurrected body like our Lord Jesus Christ. Our, hope, our final hope is not us disembodied, floating on some white clouds, but instead our final hope rests in the fact that we will one day have new bodies, Bodies that won't give way, that won't age, that won't pass away, but instead new glorified bodies dwelling with our Lord Jesus Christ and the full unobstructed presence of God. We'll see that in a few weeks as we consider the resurrection from 1 Corinthians 15. But that's the point of this, right? When we die, it's not, we're not excited about the intermediate state. We're excited about the resurrection, Right? The hope of the resurrection, that's what Paul always casts our gaze towards. It's a place, as Paul puts it here so poetically, where what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now, that's a beautiful picture, isn't it? The resurrection, the new heavens and the new earth being the place where the mortal, flesh and blood, you and me, are, is swallowed up by life itself. Swallowed up by the God who is himself life. So we have the fear of destruction, the future hope of resurrection, and a new body from God. 
But lastly, we're going to turn and really think about for a second the intermediate state, the rest, the beginning of the rest that we find with Christ. And as we, if, you've re- if you're familiar with the way the Bible talks about the intermediate state, you know that it seems to be all over the place, right? In the Old Testament, it seems like everybody went to Sheol, right? Everyone's going to the grave, good, bad. We see David talking about it. We see evil people sent there. Everywhere it seems to go to just to the same place. It was a sort of just holding ground, right? Just a waiting room. And yet, as time progressed in the intertestamental times, we all see all sorts of different Jewish groups start to pop up, giving their own opinion on what happens. In fact, we even see maybe a hint of this, right, in Luke 16, where, Paul, or where uh, Jesus gives the uh, parable of the rich man and Lazarus, right? And he talks about the, the uh, Lazarus going to Abraham's side and the rich man going to uh, flame and torment. So we see that maybe by the interte- intertestamental time, they had kind of sort of divvied it out, like, all right, good people go to this part of Sheol, bad people go to this part of Sheol. It was never really clear. However, in the New Testament, with the ascension of Christ, we are given a clear picture of where our rest awaits, of where we are going, right, of what we are aiming after. As we see here in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, Paul says that he would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. That his desire is to be away from the body, no longer here, but to be with Christ. And so we see that the intermediate state where we go to be with Christ is the end. It marks the end of our pilgrimage here on earth. It is the end of our pilgrimage here on earth, and it is the beginning of eternal rest with Christ. We see the same thing in Philippians 1.23, right, where he says, My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Or shockingly so, in Revelation 7, John sees a whole vast multitude of people worshiping God in heaven, and he asks, Who are these? And the angel says, These are the saints the martyrs, and they're worshiping God, falling down before him. That is where we go, where we await the resurrection, being with Christ. Now, that should excite us, right? Because being with Christ means that we no longer walk by faith, but our faith has been made sight And the thing our heart yearns for here on earth, the person our heart yearns for here on earth, is finally brought before us. We finally dwell with him. Again, though, I have to underscore that the New Testament at best whispers about what this will be like. It gives us hints and shadows. We We don't know what the full picture of what it will be like, but we know that it will be better than what we have now. And yet, that is not to underscore or undercut the damage that death does. Death is still an enemy. Death is the final foe to be defeated. However, as we see in this passage and in Philippians 1 as well, that for those in Christ, death becomes nothing more than a doorway. 
and becomes nothing more than a doorway between our faith, our pilgrimage walk here by faith to dwelling with Christ and eternal rest. And we do mourn the loss of loved ones here on this side, but individually, you and I, we have nothing left to fear. As Scott said two weeks ago, death has been defeated. The sting of death is gone. And you and I have nothing to fear when our time comes. For the moment that the light leaves your eyes, right, the moment that you breathe your last breath here on earth, from that moment on, you'll be basking in the light of Christ. You'll be breathing Holy Spirit air, no longer the polluted air of this earth. Just like that, you'll find yourself perhaps in a hospital bed or your own bed, wherever it might be, to standing before the presence of Christ. Standing before the one our hearts yearn after. And while this gives us great hope, while this should propel us forward in confidence, knowing that death is no longer our great fear, there is another side to this, right? It's this thing that is comfort for you and I, knowing that when we die, we go to be with Christ. The thing that marks the end of our pilgrimage and eternal rest with our Savior, that same thing also marks the beginning of eternal punishment for all those who are outside of Christ. just as we see all throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament, that good news for some means bad news for others. Salvation for Israel means judgment on Babylon. Our going to be with Christ means everyone else is going to eternal punishment. And that should sober us says, yes, this is a doctrine for our comfort. This is something we long for and hope for. But we should be propelled by this doctrine to tell people about Jesus Christ. And I, first and foremost, need to be reminded of this. Right? That all of us are going somewhere. That the afterlife is not going to be a reunion with friends, with your favorite dog, whatever it may be, right? But the afterlife is either going to be presence with Christ or presence in eternal punishment. And yet we see that we can use this, just like Paul, as an entry point, can't we? As I said, everyone fears death, our fear of death, Someone like Susan Sontag and the hundreds, and hundreds of thousands of others who have faced death with no hope on the other side. It's an entry point where we can say there is hope in Christ. There's a place where we go to be with Christ. So when we think about the intermediate state, right, it, it takes away our fears of death. It's the beginning of 
hope, of, it's the beginning of our eternal life with Christ as we hope and wait for the resurrection of the dead. But lastly, and perhaps most soberingly, as I said, it's, a, it's the startling realization that we're either with Christ for eternity or we're in torment for eternity. So as we go forth tonight, this week, be thinking of that. Do you see your neighbor? Do you see your children, your parents, your friends, your family? Do you see them as those who will be spending eternity with Christ? Or in torment? Because everyone has an intermediate state waiting for them. And it's our job, God has called us to warn people, to tell people about what awaits them. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful hope we have that while our life ends here on earth, our new life begins with you. But we do ask that you would fix our eyes towards the resurrection, towards our final hope with Christ. But Lord, at the same time, would you use this doctrine, this truth of eternal rest as fuel to warn people about eternal punishment as well. Lord, we thank you for your mercy to us, and we ask that we would be vessels to communicate that mercy to all around us. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.